Welcome to the Chrisman Commentary Daily Mortgage News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Chrisman. Thanks for listening this Friday, November 5th, 2021. It's our 200th episode. Topics on today's episode include part one of an interview with Sunday co-founder and CEO Josh Steck on why Zillow has had such a rough go in the iBuying space, and just what would make the Federal Reserve raise interest rates. I'd like to thank today's podcast sponsor, DocProbe. Getting control of the trailing documents process has been a thorn in the side of lenders for about as long as the mortgage industry has been around. DocProbe has taken the mortgage industry by storm by revolutionizing the entire trailing docs process from the bottom up. For over 10 years now, well over 100 lenders around the country have relied on DocProbe for efficient, cost-effective, and headache-free processing of all their trailing docs so they can focus on what they do best, closing new loans. Nothing brings women together quite like an unclear dress code. (laughs) Dress codes have been all over the map during the pandemic, and as companies adjust to having everyone come back into the office, a hybrid approach, or letting workers stay home, each with pros and cons, some look at what other professions are doing. In the legal biz, courts are facing pushback from litigators who are less than eager to give up the efficiency, safety, and cost-effectiveness of remote proceedings. Seating a jury is problematic. Demand for diverse legal talent is higher than ever, and recruiters are facing new pressure to place candidates from underrepresented backgrounds at clients' law firms. Will law firms' new normal include nap time? Forward-thinking employers should be encouraging midday checkout sessions, says a leader at one mid-sized firm, and saying the level of discontent and disconnectedness driving it seems almost unmanageable. What about comp? Inflation is a concern, and even more so when put in the context of wage growth. The U.S. Census Bureau announced that median household income in 2020 decreased 2.9% to $67,521. That was the first statistically significant decline in median household income since 2011. But employers, from mom-and-pop restaurants to multinational corporations, are having trouble finding staff. Stay tuned. For today's interview, I wanted to welcome onto the show Josh Steck co-founder and CEO of Sunday. Sunday is a residential real estate marketplace transforming the way property investors buy distressed properties. Sunday's new digital platform gives investors the ability to view properties, submit offers, and streamline transactions. The first and only that provides access to exclusive embedded properties sourced directly from homeowners looking to sell to a cash buyer. Josh started Sunday to help homeowners get a better outcome when selling off-market. Prior to starting Sunday, Josh was founding partner and SVP of sales at Lending Home. He graduated with honors from Stanford, writing his thesis on the long-term impact of the subprime lending crisis on the Latino community. For more information, go to www.sunday.com. Hey, Josh, how you doing? Hey, Robert, wonderful, how are you? I'm good, thanks for uh, making the time here today. I know you're traveling a bit. No, no problem, it's, uh, it's my job. <laughs> any i know the zillow news has been on a lot of people's minds any desire to comment on talk about that it's certainly of interest to people why why zillow uh decided that it wasn't going to work whether that's the the extra one and a half percent fee for staging essentially wasn't worth it or uh you know they did they still make money with the market being so hot what what do you think the best angle is to go about it yeah, well, I think, I mean, we know, kind of, I, I think I'm pretty clear on kind of why um, it happened to Zillow in particular, which is I think they 
underestimated the operational intensity of the business. And then they really overestimated the, the accuracy of their algorithmic value underwriting. And so I think that, I mean, that's, they just bought too many homes for too much money and then held them for too long and they lost money. I mean, so, so I think, I think we know why I think the bigger question in my mind is like, Hey, what does this mean about I buying's future? Or is it destined to fail as a category? You know, that sort of thing. And um, my, my thoughts around that are, I've been in the, I've been in this kind of homes that need love category for about 12 years. I started my career fixing and flipping in Las Vegas uh, in 2009, did a few hundred homes and then started lending to others who did that. And, you know, one thing that's interesting is about fixing and flipping, right, is that historically it's been focused on homes that need love because, there's value creation opportunity in the renovation. You know, you put in a dollar and you get two dollars out, and that's that's how you make money. Um, what's interesting about the iBuy models is it's different, right? It relies on on two very very different things than that, right? Number one is the fee that it charges, which is really just a version of buying a home at a discount, right? It's same thing, um, which of course we we know is varied, you know, anywhere from twelve percent historically to six, seven, eight percent now. Um, but there's that fee, right? That's what they rely on. And the second thing they rely on is home price appreciation. Um, and, you know, the, 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 the value of the home increasing over the course of their, their hold. And, you know, to, to the extent that there's less home price appreciation, you know, you'd imagine that the fee then has to ratchet up, right? Um, because you don't have that value creation aspect of the business anymore. And I think, you know, what's, I think um, my concern with that model is that, you know, real estate is cyclical. It's like every eight to 12 years, there's a proper full cycle. And for about two to three years, there's very flat to negative home price appreciation. That's that's just how it works, you know? And what happens to this model when when that occurs? And because when, when HPA is no longer at play or it's a headwind, not a tailwind, which it's been a huge tailwind, um, now you have to ratchet your price up, which is that discount, right? That discount of the purchase. And at some point, the seller is just not going to see the value in the service anymore, right? Like some 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 fee is just going to be like that's irrational. Like, and then I think the the final comment I'd make is like, what what I buying tries to solve, and I think that has has done relatively effectively, is you know giving homeowners the cert the price certainty and the and the close timeline flexibility, you know, and those are that solves this matching problem between buying a home, selling a home and buying a home and needing to time it. Um, but what it does not do, it does a very bad job of, well, unless you're way overpaying, like we saw Zillow do, is it does not give you price competition because you call one eye buyer and they give you one price. Maybe you call a second, they give you a second. But I mean, that's not fair price competition. And so, you know, you, what, what's fair price competition, especially in this, um, especially as you're talking about investors is, you're getting dozens of offers. So I think what, what we've done at Sunday that's really unique is, and, and why I'm more obviously more bullish on our marketplace model than, than, than any other model out there, inclusive of iBuying, is that we've preserved, and, I'll, and here's kind of, I'll tell you what Sunday is, but we've preserved the what homeowners want in a property investor sale, whether it's an iBuyer or a fix and flipper or a mom and pop landlord, like what they want is that certainty of price and they want the flexibility of like move out time. Can I move out in 10 days or can I take 30 or 60? So what we've done is we preserve that on our marketplace, but we've also then given you fair price competition. So here's how that works. We, we visit your home, we package it as an investment. So we do third-party inspection reports, 
construction estimates, floor plans, 3D walkthroughs, um, all sorts of information that we bring to a, list, a listing platform. We then list that home uh, for the seller, no fee. And then we, we run a five-day auction on the home. And within those five days, you're getting dozens of offers from qualified investors, iBuyers included, real, you know, public REITs, real estate investment trusts included, um, and small, you know, mom and pop operations like fix and flippers, like I was back in, you know, 10 years ago in Vegas included. And so now you're getting dozens of offers. And what's so fascinating is like, it's, it is absolutely impossible to predict who's going to win on any given home. Like, it's just, it's just very, it's subjective. The view on like the value of these homes is. So sometimes if the home needs less work, an iBuyer tends to win. Um, REITs also are very competitive. I don't know if you know, but upwards of 30% of all the homes that iBuyers buy, they sell to these public REITs. So it, you know, they're just a middleman for REITs for a bit, very large percentage of their business. So we remove that, right? And we let them buy direct from the homeowner on our marketplace. But then sometimes low, mom and pops pay way more just because they 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 understand the value of a cul-de-sac or a partial ocean view or you know whatever it is. So so I think long story short, I mean we I, I I'm skeptical about the eye buying model in flat to negative HPA environments, like very very skeptical of it. Um, and then I think I think just be like much more sort of broadly, there's just a better execution for these homeowners. Like come to a marketplace, Sunday's the only one that I'm aware of, get dozens of offers, including iBuyer offers, but also local investors. And then, you know, within five days, you have that certainty you wanted. One thing we've done that, that hopefully you'll, you'll appreciate Robert is we, uh, we standardize every single term in the offers except price. So, you know, one thing that's hard to understand when you're getting multiple investor offers is like, well, who's paying what closing fees and who has contingencies and which, you know, what, how big is the earnest money? We standardize all that. So every investor pays the same earnest money deposit. Every investor is bidding non-contingent. So they don't have the right to do inspections. They don't have the right to do appraisals. They don't have the right to make it contingent on financing. Um, they all, and then, and then um, they all pay all the closing fees. So not a single dollar is charged to the seller. So when the seller sees, you know, 20 offers and the top one's 400,000, if they choose that one, they literally walk away with $400,000, not 396,342 because there was all this crap, you know, that they weren't expecting. So, um, and the final thing, and I'll shut up <laughs> is, uh, is, uh, is we provide a cash advance, you know? So when, when we make that match between buyer and seller, we understand the seller still has anywhere from 10 to 45 days, you know, or even, I mean, as much as 60 to move out, but they still have like it, you know, often what's causing them to sell is that they have some sort of financial pressure, uh, whether it's job loss or, medical bills or, you know, a divorce is happening, whatever it happens to be, they, they, they need, they need money to help them solve their problem while they wait for the home to close. So we provide up to a $10,000 cash advance so that they can do that and solve their problems, you know, while they're waiting. So, so anyway, I guess that's, that's, uh, I guess answered maybe the, the Sunday background. I can also talk about inception and like how I got into the business, but. No, I'll, I'll get there in a second. I, I, I think a natural segue would be, why do you think that iBuying has worked better when it comes to cars than with homes, whether that's something like CarMax or Carvana, or, you know, there's a myriad of buyers out there and, and that market seems to be functioning better than uh, at least Zillow did recently in, in their endeavor into this one. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a different asset, right? You know, we're a little less emotionally attached. The, the risk, right, is lower that, that if you buy, you know, if you buy a car that you don't like, um, it's, it's just a lower risk than you buy a house that you, you know, you don't like or that you thought was different. Um, 
And, and I think, uh, and I think it's, it's operationally like dramatically easier, right. To, to refurbish cars than refurbish houses. I mean, refurbishing and maintaining houses is a absolute nightmare. It's very hard to do at scale, but a car, you know, you have efficiencies, you have centralization, you can take inventory on a lot and you have, you know, you have your service station there, right? You don't have your service station that's distributed going to every single house. So I think there's, I think the asset, just the nature of the asset's different, the emotional attachment, the the risk is different, but then also operationally, it's just much easier to do that business. True. Well, you've had success doing it at scale. You know, if you did a hundred homes in, in Vegas yeah. after the last financial crisis, did you start Sunday as a result of that? As, as you saying, God, there's a, there's a better outcome for homeowners when they're selling off market. How, how did your personal experience shape you starting this company? Yeah. That, um, so I spent about two and a half years uh, fixing and flipping, and then another three years lending to others that were doing it, um, fixing and flipping, that is. And then I was fortunate to um, start lending home with a couple of buddies. And that was my first foray into technology companies. Before that, they were really, you know, just little private equity funds and running it with a dozen people. I mean, nothing, you know, nothing like what we did at Lending Home. Lending Home was, you know, raised a couple hundred million of venture capital. Uh, create a very valuable business very quickly. Um, take number one market share by link, link, you know, leaps and bounds over the competition, uh, where really there'd never been any standardization. So, you know, with, with lending home, it was not, it was very specifically a short-term fix and flip bridge loan company. It just happened that that was a niche that was massive. And we became number one with you know 18 or more percent market share at one point. So that was a really cool experience. But between that, that was about five years. Between that and then that prior experience actually being an operator, um, it was just like the, the, an aha moment. It was almost 10 years in the making. And the aha moment was I was actually talking to uh, one of my colleagues who, or not colleague, I guess, um, a customer. And, and I was just saying, hey, how, how are things going? And he, you know, he regales me with this story of his success. And he says, oh my gosh, you're not going to believe this. I... Um, I contracted a home yesterday, uh, maybe a week ago for $100,000. And just a couple of days later, I found someone else to buy it. And what I'm describing is called a wholesaler now uh, for $190,000. And I made $90,000 in a couple of days. And I just, I, I knew that this happens. This is what's called wholesaling, which is you contract a home for a very low price. And then you find a real buyer and you mark it up. And then you take your fee. You never own the home. And I knew that that existed. I'd seen it a lot. I just, that story just irked me. And I said, hey, you know, who is the seller of that home? And he said, well, it was a widow. She just lost her husband. She was moving into a nursing home. And I was like, well, do you, you know, do you think you earned that 90 grand? Maybe, maybe that was too much. And, you know, what he said was just blew me away. It was, well, you know, she, she thought that the $100,000 was fair. And I only do a handful of these every year and I need to sustain my lifestyle. And I knew there was a lot of inefficiency in this business and like people taking that kind of margin and fleecing the homeowner. But that's, that story made me just realize there's, there's no advocate for these sellers because as much as a realtor wants to help, a realtor's marketing tool is not appropriate for these homes. The MLS can't position these homes as an investment opportunity. They position homes that look pretty and are staged. Um, these things don't look pretty and they need construction estimates. They need inspection reports, things that realtors and the MLS don't do, but also, you know, almost, more than more than 70% of our buyers on Sunday don't source deals from the MLS. It's just, they don't even consider it a source for investment property. So you have 
the MLS isn't even reaching the right buyer for these homes, let alone it can't position the homes right. So yeah, it was just like, oh my goodness, a managed marketplace where we sit in between these two and help the coordination and discovery problem and get better prices. On the one hand, better prices for sellers, which then, you know, you you may say, well, what about flippers then? Well, two things. Number one, they all know that they make too much money for what they do. So yes, there's going to be some natural margin compression. But number two is there's a real benefit to using Sunday, which is you know, the most expensive thing as a property investor is to have money in the bank because you're earning nothing on it. Whereas if that money's working for you in a deal, it's earning significant return if you do it right. So what we offer right, to an investor is a consistent source of inventory where the minute you need a property, you can get one. And that, that creates a massive capital inefficiency or it creates a capital efficiency that is that they really value. So that's kind of how it all came to be. And by the way, my co-founder was the CFO at Airbnb and um, he, he just had such good, deep managed marketplace experience where you know they're connecting vacation rental homeowners with tenants and we're connecting sellers of homes that need some work with property investors who can do that work. But there are a lot of parallels. And so his experience was really helpful. I need to ask you what the next big thing is to uh, ride your coattails into it. Sounds like you've had great success here. (laughs) Thanks. Join us on Monday for part two of the interview. Well, the Federal Reserve will begin tapering this month, which should counteract inflation. Fed Chair Powell did say in his press conference that officials will nevertheless remain patient on raising interest rates. Tapering, quote, does not imply any direct signal regarding our interest rate policy. End quote, Powell said. Quote, if response is called for, we will not hesitate. End quote. But of course, the mainstream press is consumed with conjecturing about if and when the Federal Reserve's Open Market Committee will raise rates, none of which does mortgage loan originators any good. Last week showed us that consumer demand remains strong despite numerous drags on economic activity. Home buying saw a resurgence in September, with new home sales spiking 14%, following a 7% rise in existing home sales. While there is still concern over builders' ability to source materials and labor, they have been able to navigate their supply constraints and completed homes reach a six-month high. Annual price gains softened to a still-high 18.7% increase. However, that is down from a 23.3% annual gain in August. Declining COVID cases and a still-hot job market led to the first gain in consumer confidence over the last three months. The percentage of consumers planning to take a vacation hit a post-pandemic high and many indicated they plan on making large purchases over the next six months as well. Recreation services and food services saw sales increase in September. The backlogs at the nation's ports and warehouses continue to create problems for the supply chain, as a record $235 billion of core capital goods wait to be delivered. Yes, the question is now out there, when and how fast the Fed will begin to raise rates. Inflation could force the Fed's hand, even as committee members remain divided over the first rate hike with half forecasting 2022 and half 2023. There's also debate about how easily higher rates tighten financial conditions and cool off the economy. So far, there's little sign they'll have much effect, and the muted reaction in the bond market after the tapering announcement is the near opposite of what happened during the taper tantrum. The last time the Fed faced unresponsive markets, between 2004 and 2006, it had to hike rates at 17 consecutive meetings, from 1% to 5.25%. With the Fed's course of action fairly established, scheduled economic news becomes mundane and less likely to actually move rates. Yesterday's batch of economic data featured a larger-than-expected drop in Q3 productivity, while unit labor costs increased more than expected. This first Friday of the month means the October employment report, 
Non-farm payrolls came in at 531,000, stronger than the 480,000 expected. The unemployment rate came in at 4.6%, the lowest post-pandemic number we've had. And hourly earnings were up 0.4%. It's a great report on the whole. Later today brings September consumer credit and remarks from Kansas City Fed President George. The desk is scheduled to purchase up to $5.95 billion of 30 or 2% and 2.5% mortgage-backed securities. We begin the day with agency MBS prices worse than eighth and the 10 year yielding 1.54 after closing yesterday at 1.52% after the solid October jobs report. Let's wrap up with a joke and some housekeeping. What did the runner say to the Persian? I ran. <laughs> Thanks again to today's podcast sponsor, DocProbe. DocProbe is the nation's leading trailing document service provider. They take control of the entire process and deliver efficient, cost-effective, and reliable document fulfillment so you can get back to closing loans. Check them out at www.docprobe.net. If you have any questions about the podcast or sponsoring opportunities, send me an email at robbie at robchrisman.com. Visit robchrisman.com for more information on our industry partners, access to archived commentaries, and how to subscribe to the daily mortgage news and commentary. To listen to or download past episodes of this podcast, search Mortgage News on any platform you get your podcast from.